Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's direction on our study. Father, we're thankful for your word that you have revealed to us down through the centuries and that you have overseen its uh, the entire process of revelation from inspiration to uh, preservation of the text so that today we can have confidence in your word, that we have your word, and that we can trust your word. Father, we pray that you would enable us to understand the things that we study today and that God the Holy Spirit would use this to challenge each of us in our own spiritual life and our own spiritual walk that we might be strengthened in our uh, desire to uh, trust in you and to trust you for all of the issues in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in back in 2 Kings chapter 18 this morning. After a brief diversion for the last uh, four or five weeks where we have focused on the topic of the Word of God, can we trust it? Can we really trust the Bible? Because at the core of this interchange and this conflict that's being described in Second Kings 18 and on into 19 is the issue of trust, the issue of faith in God. Can we really trust and what the Bible says, that the Bible is the Word of God, and ultimately can we really and truly trust God. Now, in the last few weeks, what I focused on was the evidence that the Word of God is trustworthy, that we have evidence, both in terms of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that what we have in the 66 books of the Bible is uh, is trustworthy. There is a veracity to this book, this collection of books, that is unique and distinct. It is categorically different from all other religious texts, all other uh, religious books, and in that it claims to be the very revelation of God from God, originating in God through man, where God oversaw or superintended the process of inspiration so that what was written, though it did not uh, take away from the individual personalities, backgrounds, education, vocabulary, personality, etc., of the, of the writers of Scripture, God guaranteed that what they wrote would be without error and would express all that God wanted to have communicated to us so that in the end we would have a sufficient revelation, that is a revelation that was enough 
to give us everything we needed to know about salvation and about the spiritual life. But it is that revelation from God to man that is constantly being challenged. And despite the fact that we have an overwhelming amount of evidence, people still reject the Bible because the issue isn't evidence. The evidence is good for us as believers because it uh, gives us a confirmation that what we believe is true and that we really can trust the word. But ultimately, it doesn't matter how much evidence you have on the veracity of God's word. The bottom line is still, do you want to believe believe God's word? It's volition again and again and again. I mean, no one had more uh, evidence of the veracity of God and of his care and of his existence than Adam and Eve in the garden because God came and spent time with them every day and they heard the self-authenticating authoritative voice of God every single day. They had more evidence than we could ever possibly have in an experiential way and yet they chose to disobey God. In the same way when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the earth and you have the uh, living word of God who uh, revealed God in the flesh and all that he said and did in terms of miracles, in terms of his teaching, carried the same weight, the same authority, the same validity of everything that God the Father had communicated in the garden to Adam and, and Eve. And so when we come to look at the New Testament, we look at the Gospels and we see here the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth incarnate, he is still rejected. Not because there's not enough evidence, but because evidence isn't the issue. Reason is, isn't the issue. This is the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 1, that it, the issue, the problem, is our volition and sin, and despite an overwhelming amount of evidence for the existence of God and for the veracity of his word, in sin, the human race wants to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And so there's always that challenge. It's always the center focus of the battle is are we going to trust God or are we going to seek some other solution to the problems and challenges that we face in life? Are we really going to truly take God at his word and trust him radically and uniquely? Are we going to try to solve the problem some other way? Do we believe in the sufficiency of God's power, the sufficiency of his grace, the sufficiency of his word, or do we think that somehow uh, I'm going to try to solve this problem from my own resources, I'm going to look somewhere else for help, or I'm going to trust God and something else, or we're just going to maybe bail out and try God as a last resort, but first we're going to try to solve the problems on our own. And that's part of what Hezekiah did when he was faced with the uh, invasion of the Assyrian army and with the overwhelming power of the Assyrians preceding that invasion because he tried to buy them off with, uh, with money. He took the gold and the silver and the other valuable objects out of the temple and tried to uh, pay off the Assyrians through... Uh, uh, through paying these bribes, basically, to get them to leave him alone, this hush money, or uh, <clears throat> and and in, and instead it didn't didn't do anything. When that tribute money uh, finally had to stop, and Hezekiah didn't send it anymore, then the next thing you knew, Sennacherib is invading uh, Judah, invading all of uh, the area around Philistia, uh, Judah, Israel again, 
And the challenge, once again, is who do you trust, Israel? Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust trust in man? And again, Hezekiah is trying to uh, handle it his own way, and he's going to trust in the try to trust in the Egyptians as his allies to be the uh, ultimate resource to give him uh, the, the military power to resist the invading force of, of Sennacherib. And what this, this situation does is depict for us in terms of a battle, which is how the spiritual life is often depicted in Scripture, but in terms of this particular battle and this particular conflict, what it focuses for us is the same issue that we face no matter what our battle or challenge may be, whether your battle has to do with uh, facing health problems, whether your battle has to do with facing uh, work or employment problems or person uh, problems with people, problems with other uh, circumstances in life. The battle always comes down to the same issue. Are we going to try to solve the problems, solve the challenges on our own, or are we going to, are we going to trust in God? And so that becomes the key issue. And I want to direct your attention back to Second Kings, uh, <clears throat> chapter eighteen, verse, and we'll look at verse nineteen, beginning there. The Rob Shaka is sort of the chief of staff for uh, Sennacherib. And he has been sent along with the Tartan, who's the commander-in-chief, and the Robsaris, who is uh, uh, also one of the uh, chief counselors uh, to Sennacherib. And these three men come from the uh, headquarters of Sennacherib with a message to Hezekiah. They are, this is just an early form of psychological warfare. It's not something that was invented in the 20th century. It's as old as the Garden of Eden, uh, twisting, manipulating the data, in order to get us to quit trusting God and to trust in something else. And in this, we see the classic strategy that Satan always uses in order to uh, destroy our effectiveness in the spiritual life. And that's what we've been focusing on the last week, because the Rabshaka, in his, in his opening comment in verse 19, focuses the, the whole issue on... The, the real central issue, and that is trust. In verse 19, the Rabshakeh says to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? And I've covered this in the past, and the word that is used there both for confidence and trust is the Hebrew word batach, which has the idea of the expression of assurance, expression of confidence, what are you relying upon, what are you depending upon? It is not a trust in the sense of what is it that you believe or what is it that you're trusting in. It has more of the idea of what is it upon which you're placing your your confidence, your hope. And in another way is another way we might we might express that hope, meaning confident expectation. And so we see in this verse that the real issue is trust. Now in the in the Old Testament there are Three key words that are uh, translated uh, trust. And the whole idea in English expressed by faith or trust or confidence, this group of synonyms reflects the emphases in these uh, synonyms in the Hebrew language. Uh, the first word that is of importance is a word that should be familiar to us in another form, and that form is uh, uh, amen, a word that we use at the end of every prayer. 
which has the idea of expressing something that we believe. It comes from the root Hebrew verb aman, and aman means to believe something, to trust in something. And it has an interesting root meaning, and it has, and it relates to that which has a sure and certain or stable foundation. In one place it's used to refer to the foundation stone that is under the uh, under the doorposts of the temple, that which cannot be shaken. Now, I don't know if it's referring to a stone we saw when we were, uh, probably not, uh, the stone we saw when we were in Israel. But if you go through the under the western wall, uh, which was a retaining wall built by, uh, built by Herod when he was restoring the temple, the, the second temple around from about 40 or about 30 BC up until about 40, uh, 80, 40. Uh, we went down there and there's this huge foundation stone that's about as long as from this door over here on my right back to the back corner. And it's about four feet high. And it is believed that it's about 500, weighs about 500 tons. They moved it there. Now that's a, that is a stone that can give a certain amount of stability. That's the idea underlying this word aman is that it is stability. It is that which is, uh, cannot be shaken, that which provides a, a firm foundation. Now this is used in a uh, interesting and significant passage in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20, if you want to uh, turn with me there, I'm going to look at a couple of things related to the context of Second Chronicles 20, uh, 20, verse 20. There, as we've seen in our study of Kings, there are a lot of parallels between Chronicles and Kings for the books of uh, First and Second Chronicles focuses on the southern kingdom of Judah and the Davidic line. And in Second Chronicles chapter 20, there is the uh, description of the battle that takes place between uh, Jehoshaphat, who's the king of Judah, and the uh, Ammonites, Moabites, and which uh, live on the southeastern flank of Judah. And they have a major battle. Uh, God gives victory to Judah and to Jehoshaphat, uh, in, and that's described uh, in this particular chapter, and after the victory, they gather in the valley of Berachah to uh, worship and praise uh, God. They call it the valley of Berachah because this is the Hebrew word for blessing. And if we just take a second in this uh, and look at this passage, we see that uh, the Spirit of the Lord in verse 14 comes upon Jehazael, the son of Zechariah, uh, one of the prophets, and says to addresses uh, Judah and addresses Jehoshaphat and says, starting in verse 15, Listen, all of you, Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord. See, this is another example that I pointed out several weeks ago as we look at the Bible, that the Bible doesn't claim to be a record of people's experiences with God. It claims to say and provide for us exactly what God has said to us. And again and again and again, in fact, over uh, depending on how you structure the phrase, you have over 2,000 times in the Old Testament these claims that this is what God is saying to someone or to a group of people. Most frequently it's the phrase, thus says the Lord, but sometimes it's modified. It says the Lord said or something of that nature, but it claims to be the very words of God. 
Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. See, this is the problem we have. We look at circumstances that are overwhelming. We look at situations that seem to be impossible. We cannot handle them from our own resources. We cannot handle them uh, based on our own experience, based on our own intelligence, based on uh, whatever factors are involved. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough technology. We can't change the things that are there, and yet it is an overwhelming uh, challenge for us. And that's the situation that they faced as, a, as an enemy that overwhelmed them in terms of military ability, ability, military strength, and military technology. But when God is on our side, God plus one is a majority, and we really don't need to be concerned about what the enemy has in their arsenal. And so God says, don't be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is always the Lord's for the believer. That's, that doesn't mean that you go into some sort of a mystical uh, trance where you're contemplating your navel and you say, well, then we don't need to have technology or we don't need to understand anything about strategy or tactics or the enemy. But that's not your focal point. Uh, the Bible never authorizes us to just close our eyes to reality and ignore those other factors, but it's where does your ultimate trust lie? Is it in money? Is it in people? Is it in technology? Or is it in the Lord? And so um, Jehazael continues in verse 16 by giving precise instructions to Judah and Jehoshaphat. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. So they're given precise instructions. Uh, God, of course, would validate this. This is a prophecy, and the next day the exact thing would uh, took place. Verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, that is a key phrase. Just a, If you don't memorize anything else in the Bible, you can at least try to memorize that much of a phrase, to stand still and see the salvation or the deliverance of the Lord. Uh, he is the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Now, how many times have we had a reiteration of this idea? God is with you. The battle is the Lord. Stand firm. It's not your battle. Uh, the point ought to be well taken. So in verse 18, we read, And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. That is worship. He is responding to God's revelation by showing his submission to the command of God. And he does this in a physical, physically demonstrative way. It doesn't always have to be that way, but that was how they expressed it at that time. So he bowed his head face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Worship is an expression of our submission to divine authority. Then, verse 19, we read, Then the Levites and the children of the Kohathites and the children of the uh, Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they began to sing psalms of praise and thanksgiving. So we see that the role of singing in worship is not to somehow stimulate uh, the individual worshiper to 
get into a state of worship. It is the result of already having a worship-oriented mentality. Just do a little word switch there. It is the result of having a mentality that has already submitted to the authority of God. That's worship. And once you submit to the authority of God, understanding the provision of God for us, then the response is the singing of praise and the singing of hymns of joy. So that worship is a response to what God has done for us. It is not subjectively oriented. It's not to sort of gin up within us a certain feeling that is then defined as a worshipful experience. It is the result of a mental attitude which is the worshipful reality of submission to the authority of God. So verse 20 then we read, and this is the passage that we're looking at in terms of our word Amon. So they rose early in the morning, went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. See, that is the same command. Here we read in the um, uh, from the New American Standard the command to put your trust in the Lord your God. Putting your trust or believing him are parallel or synonymous concepts. Notice, first of all, you first put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. That means you will stand firm. The way to stand firm and have stability in your life doesn't come from the details of life. It comes from having your trust in God. That is the ultimate causative reality in history. And the second statement is to put your trust in his prophets. Why in his prophets? Because the prophet is the one who gives the message of God. Now, how do we listen to the prophet today? We go to his word. We go back. We study the Old Testament. We study the New Testament. We put our, by putting our trust in his word, we're, meaning the physical Bible, the revelation that he has given, we are in the same way putting our trust in him. Sometimes you will hear people try to say, see, we need to, we need to quit trusting the Bible so much and trust God. They're identical. They're the same thing. That's just the uh, uh, one of those subterfuges that's used by uh, liberal theology, and then they'll come along and say, yeah, you don't want to be Bible worshipers. Well, yes, we do, because the Bible is the Word of God. And so this first word, Amon, indicates trust. And notice that it is trusting God that is what gives victory. Does that mean that, uh, well, in that case, they did not fight physically. It was not dependent upon them to use technology. In other cases, they did use whatever uh, uh, military technology they had, whatever military strategy and tactics they had, but they were ultimately uh, trusting God. So that's the first word for trust is Amon. The second word that we find, and this is the primary word that is emphasized and translated trust in the Old Testament, and that's the word that I've mentioned already, which is the word batach. And this emphasizes confidence. What are you relying on? What are you depending on? It's not trust in the abstract. It is the re- It emphasizes more the result of trust, which is a confident, relaxed reliance, what we sometimes call faith rest, because we trust God and that allows us to rest and relax 
in the midst of our circumstances. This word is used in passages such as Psalm 28, 7. Uh, the Lord is my strength and my shield. Notice all of the metaphors that are used here to describe the protection, the stability, uh, the power that God gives to us. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him. We could rephrase that. My heart rested in confidence upon him. That's the idea. My mental attitude. Heart there refers not to the physical organ but to the mental attitude. My Mental attitude was a state of confident reliance upon him, and I am helped. See, the result of putting our confidence and relaxing upon his strength is the result is that we are helped, we are strengthened. Then the next level is, then my heart greatly rejoices. Once again, that leads to praising God, part of worship. My heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. So you see there is this movement from uh, understanding who God is and what he provides for us. That's why uh, the writer can say, the Lord is my strength and my shield. And then this moves to change of mental attitude because volitionally we're going to put our trust in God. And this leads to a solution to the problem. And then we rejoice and praise God. In Psalm 31.6 and 31.14, the word is used again. Uh, the writer says, I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Notice that word but there at the beginning of the second clause indicates the contrast. There are those who put their trust and reliance in the things of creation whether it is money, whether it is things, whether it's people, whether it is various uh, problem-solving techniques that human viewpoint generates, uh, such as uh, psychology and talk therapy and all of these other things, are we going to put our trust and our hope in the things of the world? Are we going to put our confidence solely and exclusively upon God? That's the battle. That's the contrast. You're going to trust God or trust something else. Psalm 31:14 he goes on to say but as for me in contrast David says in contrast to others I trust in you O Lord I say you are my God it's not even an abstract I'm trusting in God it, it he makes it very personal here you are my God it's not just an abstract doctrinal or theological statement but God's uh God's uh, ability to solve his problem is re- very real and personal uh, to him. In, in other passages in the Psalms, we see what we're not supposed to have confidence in. We are not supposed to have confidence in, uh, for example, military technology. Psalm 44, verse 6, For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. Does that mean he's not going to take uh, weapons into battle? Of course not. But he's not relying upon human ability, human skill, human technology to be the ultimate source of of victory. Psalm 49, uh, 49 verse 6 uh, states that we don't trust in wealth. Does that mean there's something wrong with wealth or accumulating uh, material things? Not at all. It's only wrong when the accumulation of wealth and material things is designed to solve the problems that only God can solve. 
That's why the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 defines greed as idolatry. Because when people become greedy in terms of that materialistic lust, what they are doing is assigning to things and money and the things that money can buy and the possession of things a, a, a source of security and stability that only God can provide. And at that point, it becomes idolatry. And then this is also stated again in the next verse, Psalm 52.7. Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Uh, he strength, it's not that he strengthened himself by means of wickedness, but his focus on finding strength and stability somewhere other than God is that which was wicked. And then a third word that is used in uh, several passages in the, in the Old Testament, also in Second Chronicles, uh, two passages in Second Chronicles uh, 13 and 14, we'll look at those briefly, is this Hebrew word sha'an, which means to lean on something. To and, and from that it means moving from the physical leaning upon something to the mental dependency Upon something. This is used in two key passages, so just turn back with me if you're still in Second Chronicles. First of all, Second Chronicles uh, 3.18, so I can pick up the context. Or 13.18, rather. Second Chronicles uh, 13.18. This is during the initial years of the uh, division between the northern kingdom and southern kingdom during the time when you uh, there's still a military conflict between the northern kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam the first and the southern kingdom of, of, of Judah. This is after the death of Rehoboam, so it would be toward the end of Jeroboam's life. Abijah is the second king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and three years after, we're told in verse 2, that three years after he became king is a time when there is this war between uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, when we uh, skip down into the chapter without going into uh, a lot of details. What happens is that Jeroboam uses a, a tactic to create an ambush and a surprise attack on the uh, army of, of Judah. And in verse 13 we read, But Jeroboam caused an ambush to go around behind them. So they were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. He's going to catch them between a, in a d- classic double envelopment move and trap them so that he can uh, defeat these, the army of Abijah. Verse 14, when Judah looked around, to their surprise, the battle line was both in front and to the rear, and they cried out to the Lord. See, they're, they're looking ultimately to the Lord as their stability and their strength. The priests sounded the trumpets. This is frequently when the priests sound the trumpets at the beginning of a, for example, one of the things we'll learn when we learn about uh, Jewish observance of Rosh Hashanah is it begins with the sounding of the shofar, the trumpets, because this is a call to worship. And this was what the shofar would be blown on any holy day at the, at the temple. And there is a, a, a significance to the blast of the shofar in terms of calling uh, attention to what the people are doing in terms of God. It is uh, almost a, an expression of, of, uh, of God, pay attention to us. We're coming to you to call upon you to, to aid us in this time of need. 
So there's a uh, significance to the blowing of the shofar here that goes beyond just some sort of a battle cry or bugle call. It has a significance in relation to a cry to gain God's attention. Verse 15 we read, Then the men of Judah gave a shout, and as the men of Judah shouted, it happened that just by chance, you know, it happened. That doesn't mean that. It's just simply the way the uh, uh, translators chose to express the process, of, the progress of events. That as they gave a shout, and then at that point, God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The battle is the Lord's. It is God who intervened in history to change things. We can look at all the prognostications that we can find in terms of any area of life, whether it's politics or economics or whatever it might be, and we cannot forget that God controls history. God is in charge of the details. It is not up to us. It is up to God. And the ultimate causative issue in history is always God, not man. So God is the one who overrules, God intervenes, strikes the northern kingdom, and they flee in fear. They have numerical superiority, they have tactical superiority, they have psychological superiority, but they do not have doctrinal superiority. And so the southern kingdom looks to God for aid, and God gives them aid And the result in verse 17, Abijah and his people struck them, the northern kingdom, with a great slaughter. So 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. It is a massacre for the north. Conclusion, verse 18, the verse I'm looking at, thus the sons of Israel were subdued at that time and the sons of Judah conquered because they trusted in the Lord. And that's our word, Sha'an. They leaned upon God. They were dependent upon him. That's the idea of trust, is to depend upon God. So they depended upon the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now turn over one chapter, and we're going to see a second military event in in the next chapter, this one dealing with uh, Abijah's uh, son, Asa who reigned in his place once Abijah uh, had been gathered to his fathers. And Asa was a good king. Verse uh, 14, verse 2 says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removes the more of the altars and the high places uh, in the land. And then, uh, again, he is faced with a uh, problem of, of military conquest. Zero, the Ethiopian is coming up from the south against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. He would be clearly out outnumbered. Uh, he, uh, uh, the uh, Ethiopians had uh, numerical superiority, technological superiority. Uh, they had uh, strategic superiority. But Asa has God on his side, so he doesn't need anything else. And we're told in verse 10, Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of uh, Zaphata at Merishah. And then we have the determinative issue. In Second Chronicles 14:11, then Asa called out to the, cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. In other words, he recognizes, God, you can help us by even when we're using technology, even when we're fighting, or if we're not doing anything. 
he recognizes God operates in different ways in different times. But his cry is, help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you. That's that word, once again, uh, Sha'an. We lean upon you, and in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Notice how they keep defining every conflict in terms of God versus whatever the challenge is. It's not us against them. This is always defined in this theological way. Now, that is something that I believe we have lost uh, in our culture, and we've lost it a lot in the culture of, of evangelical churches today, defining battles in terms of God. We define it all kinds of ways, but we don't define it in terms of the ultimate, uh, the ultimate issue that, that faces us. Now, this is exactly what the Rob Shaka does, and I put this little chart together to show what the real battle is. In Genesis 3, the serpent appeared, who Satan appeared to the woman and said, Now, did God really say this, that you can't eat the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil? You can't eat of every tree in the garden? And he's questioning God's revelation. Does God really care for you? Is it really true? The Rob Shaka asks the question, Where is your confidence Verse 19, today we get the same question. Where is your confidence? What are you depending upon for happiness in life, for stability in life, for meaning in life, to solve the problems that you face in life? What's your dependent? What are you depending on? Are you focusing on God ultimately or on the various things that we have uh, in the world system, personal resources, whatever talents, abilities that you have, your own personality, your own intelligence, your own education, background, family, technology, uh, money, education, uh, or some people just rely on some impersonal faith that somehow, if I just believe, believe what? Now, it's not belief that has value. It's the object of belief that has value. It is the uh, God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God, the promises of God in the Bible that have value. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in God and faith in the, in the revelation of God. And so the Rob Shaka is one who comes in and he phrases this the way that it, every battle should be phrased in our life. What are you ultimately uh, trusting in, and so he he makes that very clear. Uh, this is the same um, message that we frequently find uh, throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, again and again, challenging the people, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in God or trusting in yourself? Now, previously, Hezekiah had trusted in himself. He had tried to buy off the Assyrians with his uh, tribute payments and taking money from God by taking the gold and uh, silver out of the temple to uh, to pay off the Assyrians so that they would leave him alone. Uh, then he tried to solve the problem by entering into military alliances with the Egyptians, and the Egyptians did not have the uh, military strength or power or technology to withstand the Assyrians. In fact, by this time, uh, unbeknownst to Hezekiah, um, Tarhaka, the uh, Egyptian pharaoh, had already been uh, been defeated. So there's no hope in man. There's no uh, trust in man. 
and yet uh, that's what Hezekiah is doing. So the Rob Shaka rehearses this. He says, Say now to Hezekiah, verse 19, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? What are you putting your trust? You speak of having plans and power for war. See, it's all talk. We're used to that with politicians, that they uh, say all kinds of things and have no action. They don't do anything. They may say the right things or sound good, but then they never do anything. It's just mere words. And that's what uh, Hezekiah is just trying to bluff his way out of the situation in terms of saying, well, we have uh, the Egyptians are coming. So uh, the Rabshaka says, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, he says, he points out the flaw in trusting in Egypt. You're trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. See, the problem we have is we're trusting in everything in the world, but having an exclusive and unique trust in God. Psalm 118, 8 and 9 tells us it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. The solution is not politics. That doesn't mean we don't get involved in the political process. We live in a nation which has some line somewhere says something that it is a government for the people and by the people and of the people, which means ultimately the government is us. It's the citizenry. So we are, we have a government that's different from the Roman Empire, that's different from the Assyrian Empire, that's different from any monarchies in history. We have a government that places a responsibility and a responsibility on every citizen for a certain level of involvement in political things in order to uh, supervise the governance of the nation. It comes down to the individual and their involvement. So we have a responsibility to be a part of that process. And Scripture says that as believers, everything we're to do, we're to do to the glory of God. And that involves our responsibilities as citizens in, in this country. But as we engage in that political process and involvement, it's too easy for us to become distracted by politics and think that somehow elections and political parties and politicians really hold the key to stability and happiness in the country. It's not an either-or. It is, yes, we have to be involved in those things, but ultimately the real solution is God. It's not an either-or. It is both, but the ultimate reality is that we have to uh, we have to trust in God and not in man. Man will always fail us, and man will always uh, disappoint us. Now, as we get into the next section, what we're going to see is that the Rabshaka takes an interesting tact in his strategy. I want you to think about this. I'll come back and finish this and get into this a little more next time. Is he starts talking in terms of religious categories. And in verse 22, he says, But if you say to me that we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? Now, see, because he doesn't understand the true religious beliefs of Israel in terms of the Mosaic Covenant, he is doesn't see a distinction between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, and 
the other gods, the false gods of all the other people. So he lumps them in together. This is his fundamental error, is he doesn't understand ultimate reality in terms of God's revelation. And because of that, he looks at this in sort of a similar way to the modern comparative religions approach, is that all religions are basically equal, and all gods are basically equal or equally impotent uh, in his view. And so he he just looks at this and says, well, you know, Hezekiah tore down all these altars, so your God's just going to be mad at you. Uh, why are you going to try to trust in that God. Now, there is a, a couple of things going on in our world today that are very similar to this. When you have people in power, like Sennacherib, the Rabshaka, who are dealing with true religious realities, but they reject the validity of any religion, they can't properly assess or interpret the situation because they don't believe at a, at a core presuppositional level, they've rejected the idea that religious belief has any significance, whether it's true or false religious belief. And we see this in two great cases before us right now that are on the news this week. One is the construction of a mosque in New York City uh, near the site of the uh, of the World Trade Center. And the other has to do with, uh, with Iran and the development of uh, nuclear weapons uh, by the Iranians. And because the powers that be in Western civilization cannot think in terms of a religious reality that shapes people's thinking, they can't define the problem correctly. And if you can't define a problem correctly, you're always going to opt for a bad solution. And in the first case with the mosque in New York, what on, there are two issues which, if you've been watching the news the last 48 hours, have been clear. One is a legal issue, but one has to do, it's not wisdom, which is how it's been expressed. It's not good taste or good sense. It has to do with the fact that from a Islamic viewpoint, forget moderate Muslims. They're not shaping anything. They're not affecting anything on the Islamic side of the equation. They are nothing but a distraction. Everything that's happening on the Islamic side comes from radical Islamists who understand they are involved in a centuries-long holy war against the West, and the only time they're to stop is when the West is destroyed, period. And if you don't believe that, you can't make a good decision because that is their reality and that's what they're operating on. And we live in a Western secularized culture that says, Religion, you know, that's something that happens in the mosque or in the church or in the synagogue. It doesn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, the rest, of the, the rest of the week and the rest of the issues of life. But that's not what they believe. And they believe that when they have victory over an enemy, they should indicate that by building a mosque there. They built a mosque, the Hagia Sophia, over one of the largest churches in um, Byzantium when the uh, when, when the Muslims conquered uh, Istanbul back in the 16th or uh, 15th century. Then you have the, uh, if you go to Israel, you go to the Temple Mount. There's not a temple there. There is a mosque there, the Mosque of Omar, and it was built there to show that they had conquered uh, Israel and they placed it on the side of the Solomonic uh, Temple to show that they had victory over, over it. Well, they, the radical Islamists believed they had victory over, 
over the um, uh, uh, America, the United States, and the World Trade Center, and so they want to put a mosque there. It is a strategic concept militarily. And if we let them do it, then that is just fanning the flames of fanaticism on their side. And we have to think in those terms. And if you're secularized, are you, are you have... Uh, rejected the validity of any religious thinking, you can't think that way, then you can't make good decisions. So that's one thing. The other side, the other issue is this issue with a nuclear Iran. And you often hear people who say, well, if we don't do anything, we can contain it just like we contained the Soviet Union. But there's a little difference between the Soviet Union and Iran. The Soviet Union was comprised of secular atheists who did not believe there was an afterlife, so all there was is what's here and now. But in in Islam, ultimate reality is the afterlife. Let's commit you know, religious suicide and martyrdom so that we can have a better afterlife. Uh, it will be better for them to cause the world to explode in a nuclear holocaust so that they can all end up with their 70 virgins in paradise. And so th- there's nothing to deter them, like, like with the Soviets. The Soviets had nothing. If they died, there was nothing after that. But for Iran and for the radical Muslims, if they die, they don't care because it's just going to get better for them. So there's no restraint within the way they think to uh, to cause them to uh, refrain from actually using uh, nuclear weapons. And if we can't think in terms of religious beliefs and religious presuppositions as having validity, then we're bound to make really bad decisions. And that's the really bad decision that the Rob Shock is getting ready to make is because he doesn't believe these gods that any of the foreign powers that they've defeated have any validity, neither does this god of, of, uh, of Judah. But it's the god of Judah that's going to destroy his army and hand him and Sennacherib the uh, greatest defeat that Assyria ever knew, and we'll get into that. Uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that as we look at your word, we see reality. It tells us uh, about you. It tells us about uh, the human race. It tells us that our ultimate problem is sin. And the only way that we can truly understand reality is within the framework of your revelation, for it is that which you reveal to us that is the important that provides the important elements for properly interpreting and evaluating the circumstances we face in life. And whether we're dealing with international problems or personal problems, as we have seen, the real issue is trusting in you and not trusting in the details of life, not trusting in circumstances, money, technology, or any of the other things that, that uh, easily distract us from just complete, total, radical dependence upon you. Father, ultimately, understanding uh, faith and trust goes to the cross and believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never put their faith in Christ, never understood the gospel, that this is uh, an opportunity for them to do so, that Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of your glory and that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, but that you did everything for us by sending uh, your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to die on the cross as our substitute to pay the penalty on the cross for us that we might have eternal life. 
This is your opportunity this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, to put your faith and trust in him alone, to lean upon him, to recognize that he is the one upon whom we rely and are dependent, not on our own efforts or on our own ability. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.